0: Okay, domo erregato, Mr. Roboto, domo. All right, so I have been feeling like the 80s kid that I grew up as all week long because I've been reminiscing about technology, the technology I grew up with. I I was thinking about Atari, that little Pac-Man figure that went across the screen. And I was singing, we are living in a digital world and I am a digital boy. You know that we are. Okay, it's almost summer. I'm Brian Ripley Crandall, and we're winding down many instructional spaces and gearing up for summer opportunities once again. That is why we wanted to put another, a spectacular, a great book on your radar for the summer. We are thrilled to bring back author Rachel Ignatowski and her latest book, The History of the Computer.
1: Yes, we are, Brian. I'm also beyond thrilled to see you again because the month of May was so quiet because I was out of work a lot. Um, Still, In May, one thing, I don't know if I missed your singing or not, I missed your face and your enthusiasm for sure. I am, however, thrilled that we get our return show is with the return of Rachel, the one of a kind communicator who pens and draws books that research, that reach student audiences across so many classrooms. Today, we're going to get tech-oriented, creative and historical. It is brilliantly, a brilliantly illustrated overview of computing machines that have changed our world from the abacus to the smartphone, and of course, the people who made them. Our New York Times bestselling author and illustrator, I guess she's not ours, but we claim her, is back. Brian?
0: I'm so, I'm so thrilled to be a part of this and especially to take the microphone this evening as the ed- educator to give people a break, right, to give our teachers a break. So Rachel Ignatowski is a New York Times bestselling author and illustrator based in Santa Barbara, California. She grew up in New Jersey on a healthy diet of cartoons and pudding and graduated from the Tyler School of Art in 2011. Her work is inspired by history and science and technology. She believes that illustration is a powerful tool that can make learning exciting. She has a passion for taking dense information and making it fun and accessible. That's why I love these books, because we teachers do the same thing. All right. <laughs> Rachel is a published author with 10 Speed Press and Random House Kids. Woo, woo. And I seriously have an alert in my email from Google to notify me when this writer has a new book coming out, because I can't wait to add it to my collection. Seriously.
1: (laughs) Brian, I'm so glad that you do that. You're always my um, information about what's best in the world. And when it's Rachel, we're both like, we both do a happy dance. Um, And it's why I thought your enthusiasm for Rachel's books, why I thought it would be wonderful if tonight you led our interview offering, as you said, our teachers a little time off at the end of the semester. so They can think about summer vacation and start to relax. Um, probably with technology, including their phones by their sides. But it is a time of the year where teachers are running in every direction and finalizing the last steps in their classroom. So it's fun for me to be able to introduce you as tonight's interviewer. And what I'm going to do is share a story that you shared with me about technology that you were remembering vividly your um, jealousy when your friend Peter Boyd got the first home computer of the neighborhood and later when, his, when your college classmates came to campus with clunky but helpful keyboard machines. Um, Brian has taught, Brian my friend has taught for over a decade or, or did teach for over a decade in Louisville, Kentucky and became part of the 21st cohort of the Louisville Writing Project. It was then that he began thinking about how technology was shifting his own classroom instruction. And in fact, he was first published in a book called Teaching the New Writing, Technology Change and Assessment in the 21st Century Classroom, which was edited by our writing project colleagues, Anne Harrington, Kevin Hodgson and Charlie Moran. He is going to confess, and it's going to, maybe we'll see this in our interview tonight, that he knew little about the history of the computer until he read Rachel's book. Brian, are you ready to bring this interview forward?
0: Yeah, I can't wait. I've been thinking about this for like... Three weeks now, and um, I think I have the perfect <laughs> opening prompt for our, our National Writing Project family, one that you could do with your students or you can do on your own. And I think we should go with storytelling. You know, when is the first time you remember embracing a computer and using one to accomplish a goal? Now, you don't have to answer that question now, but you can pause the podcast or, or the video if you're watching it and take some time to writing. Um, we hope that our prompts get you thinking about possible publications and writing and activities that you could do in your own classroom. So before we get to the actual interview, I I wanted to rift a little on some of the images um, that came out of Rachel Inatofsky's book that triggered my my brain. Um, And so the first one is like, this is where I get the 1980s thing going because all of these illustrations of what came out in the 80s brought back so many memories of me, especially the pencil going into the cassette tape and winding it out, which is a technology. And I remember <laughs> our boomboxes sitting at the end of the road, you know, like dancing and roller skating and riding our bikes um, as we listened to the cassette tapes we got, we got from the mall. And then that Nintendo Switch, my little sister Casey. I was an Atari guy, but she got the Nintendo, and I couldn't play because I didn't have the hand-eye coordination. But I could figure out the game, and she would. We would spend probably twenty hours a day drinking, you know, Capri Suns and eating, you know, Oreo cookies as she solved the the games in like twenty-four hours. It was amazing. And on the next on the next slide, I was was actually laughing too because I also think about like the future, right? And not only does Rachel in this book kind of adhere to her strong woman, womenhood roles along the line of technology, because women are everywhere in the text, as always, which I love. But I also love the future prediction of what's coming next. And I I started thinking about, you know, like, when we were kids, we'd watch the Jetsons, which were, you know, reruns, and we would see Judy on the screen with video phones. And we used to say, yeah, right. I couldn't believe that we, we live that way. And even my mom FaceTimes me now. So it's just wonderful. So welcome, 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 Rachel. I think that we are going to be able to have a great interview now and we are going to be the two of us, which is the first time I'm doing this. So Tanya, we'll see you in a little while as I start to ask questions.
2: Hello. Hey. Thank you. It's Thank so you so to... much for having me.
0: Oh, I, lo- I love seeing you again. And I love your backdrop. And I love their pom-poms, right? These are my like you know, off of Amazon uh, pillows that I got to match my porch. So I'm going to start with the first question I want to ask you, Rachel, is the question, that the prompt that I gave the writing project teachers. Like, what is, what is your first memory with a computer or, or accomplishing something with a piece of technology from your childhood?
2: You know what? That's actually a really great question. So my very very first memory is I'm seven years old. I'm at the public library and um, they're kind of having this sort of like tech and arts night and they're showing off the new Mac classic computer. So it was 1998. um, And these are these tiny little Mac color computers. And um, I'm, I'm having a really great time and I open it up and I immediately start using Paint, the paint program. So I'm using the little spray can. That. Yeah, I'm using the little brush and I'm drawing like a psychedelic giraffe. Again, I'm just seven years old. And um, the, the the technology dudes who are there were like very, they were like, wow, she like is so good at picking out colors. And they start complimenting me. And, I, and they were also just amazed at how such a young kid um, could pick up this technology so quickly and use it because you have to remember that there's this big shift that was happening in the 80s and 90s, where kids were getting hold of computers kind of for the first time. They were in classrooms everywhere for the first time. And there was a lot of people who are growing up sort of native users, which is what I was. I was like, you know, I learned to type at the same time I learned to write with a pencil. Um, And even at that age of like seven, I felt like the tool had changed me. I started saving color palettes to my computers. I started um, sharing color palette, like making color palettes for my friends and sharing it. And it was the first time that I kind of like started thinking about things in a new way because I interacted with a computer, which is kind of this interesting theme that I put throughout the book, which is how do these tools, which is what a computer is, it's a tool, change how we can imagine the world around us? How do they augment our human intellect? So um, just at seven, and you know, it's like, how did we get from these computers that were like the size of rooms uh, made for the military to like a seven-year-old in a library drawing a giraffe? Like, how did we get there? And that's what this whole book is about.
0: Well, and this this goes hand in hand with the teachers that we work with because I seriously had no computer in my room when I first started when I was, when I was going through like teaching school, you know, I remember I had a, a word processor where you, it was like a typewriter, but you had this little like machine to the side or whatever that you would look at. And then it would print it out. But I remember 1998 is when, you know, you just had that memory. I was in Louisville, Kentucky, getting ready to student teach. And like, we had this phenomenon, phenomenon coming out, like, you can email people at different universities. And I was like, what's an email? And my friend goes, he was living in Portland. He's like, you know, you, you just have to go to your, your campus library and find a machine. And then you can type in this address. And and, that, and I would like wait in line to use the computer so that I could email my friends, you know, in the, in the late 90s craziness. So let's transition the questions, right? Most of our listeners are writing instructors, whether it's K twelve or in college. But we also have incredible expertise in technology, in the science sciences. Hence, we all love you because of the sciences and all the fields imaginable. So, this is why I want to know how did how did you come to the illustrative work that you do? Um, how does crafting pictures help you to narrate knowledge that you want others to have? And, now, how do you do it so spectacularly?
2: <laughs> well, um, I have a graphic design background. I went to art school. I have a bachelor of fine arts in graphic design, and when I think about what is the definition of a graphic designer, well, it's someone who organizes information to. Tell a story instantaneously. And you do that by creating hierarchies of information. So, in this book, we talk about very dense things. You know, we're talking about like how uh, binary kind of progressed to become like programming languages that we use today. We talk about um, how these large military funded programs like DARPA and ARPANET and NASA. Um, How that, like, you know, created some of the first technology, and then how did that technology get into the hands of ordinary people? These are heavy, dense stories about power, about uh, progress. But how do we make it accessible to even the youngest reader? Well, of course doodles, happy faces, fun facts. So each page in this book is broken down in different ways where um, if you just glance at the page and maybe read one or two fun facts that are heavily illustrated, you learn something. If you wanna bounce around the page and read um, different little stories that I've set up with headers, you can learn that way. Or you could just read from front to back. So there's this um, level of accessibility on every page that's at different levels. So the reader can choose how much they wanna take on at once because a lot of people, even though we all walk around with our phones and we use computers every day, people don't know the history of this technology. And I, I feel that that puts people at a disadvantage of how they can make these tools work the best for them and what they want them to do yeah
0: and so i mean the one i'm going to ask a history question following this next question but um i was thinking about the writing process of putting this together because you are spot on when you say this text is voluminous. There is so much going on in every page. It, it blooms like, you know, what's inside a flower? What's inside a computer? Yeah. And it is so, I mean, this is such a teachable text. It's so educational. And so I'm, I wanna talk about the writing processes a little bit before we go to the historical questions. Um, so we know that writing and drafting and creating and getting a book to publication is full of ups and downs. So like what, with this particular text, what was like one, ugh, that arrived along the way. And then what was one, yes, this is awesome. Like along the writing process, how long did it take you?
2: This book, I would say this book for the beginning at the research to like turning it into the printer. I would say the whole thing took me three years which is one of the longest projects that I've worked on as an author. And um, what was really exciting is that there are actually a lot of resources especially where I live in California to be able to hang out with these computers in a hands-on way. So I went to several, this was before the lockdown, I got to go to several different computer museums. I got to like touch the mainframe computers, talk to experts um, and then after the lockdown happened, um, I realized that to really get my hands on these computers, because like I said, these, this book isn't just like about the technology. It's about the cool things that people did with the technology. And to understand that you do, you have to time travel, you have to touch the machines, you have to feel what the like, oh, what did it feel like to like have this like black screen with green text on a Commodore pet, kind of like spurt numbers out at you. Like what was the learning, like just to understand the learning gap for people to be able to have access to this technology. So um, when, after the shutdown happened, I began um, kind of like, building up with my husband, our own vintage computer collection, which is, um, uh, so like we have a lot of vintage computers now. And because we live in California, we got them from a lot of primary sources. So, which was really cool. So you could talk to people who bought them in the seventies. What was their experience buying them? Like, what did they use them for? And it was just, it it just really informed everything that was going on with the book. I actually even got a bunch of little robot toys. I have one right next to me. This is Kikuzo uh, Mm. from the 1980s. And I have his uh, bigger brother, Omnibot as well, which um, you could see me playing with them on uh, my website. And it was just to get a, a feeling. That was the funnest part about the research. And then the hitting my head against the wall part about the research was uh, literally reading textbook level uh, thick books about um, ancient mathematics, about, um, you know, here's a great book, Fire in the Valley, which is a really actually a fun read, but it's about all of the uh, corporate dealings and the environment that was happening in Silicon Valley around the personal computer. And it's like, you read a text this big to get like, For a book like this, which is such a, you know, an expansive reference book that's almost like a graphic novel. It has so many illustrations in it. Um, You read a book this big to get like a picture drawn in your mind to be able to draw a beautiful illustration that only has a couple sentences that really captures the entire essence of what your, of that whole story. So um, it was, it was challenging and it was wonderful. And I feel like I have more control over the technology I use as an artist than I ever had before. And I feel like I understand the media and technology landscape that can feel very frustrating, especially to teachers because there's so much misinformation out there. I know that they struggle with that a lot with their students when trying to teach. Um, By learning the history going all the way back to the stone age to now, I feel like I can navigate all of that a lot easier.
0: Yeah, and you've got me, you, you had me, you triggered something for me, because um, I'm part of an, the Initiative for Literacy in a Digital Age. Dr. Shelby Witt out in Oklahoma, and um, she is a guru, and she's pulled together a wonderful family of er- all the educators that really work with digital literacy. And I was just thinking, this is the perfect gift to give to all of my friends across that network, um, because this is a book that they all need to know about. So that was a quick aside. Let's go back to the history. So the- <laughs> in the history, like you just said, like you just, you covered from the beginning to the end yes you cover 25000 years bce right to the date that you hit the send for publication i'm guessing in 2021 it's done yes Whereas,
1: yes and, <laughs> it,
0: the whole text is a historical timeline like unlike anything I've ever seen. It covers everything. So how did you set out to organize this book? Um, how did you set out to research it? Because it is abundant. And did did you originally plan on going that far or did it just naturally come that way?
2: I had to go that far back. I had to go back to the Stone Age. Um, and really, because what we're talking about is you know, people think about technology and the first thing they think about are these big companies, you know, in California and Seattle and like, you know, stocks and stuff, but that's not what computers are about. Computers come from the human need to um, create tools to help us keep track of what's going on in our old noggins. Like it's this human need to have tools to help us think bigger. And it starts when, society got too complicated to just count on your fingers and your toes. That's the moment it starts. The moment that we start recording history, recording the amount of sheep in a flock by notching on uh, pieces of bone or tallying on the wall, that is the moment we start creating tools for thinking. And to be able to explain that, especially to little kids, you do have to go all the way back and start at the very, very beginning because the evolution comes from that. Because like you know, what happens when the mathematics gets too complicated? Well, you, the same people who were notching on the wall, they start drawing in the sand, they start drawing tables that will become the abacus. And those, you know, then like, that evolves into calculators and tabulators and the idea that maybe we can create a computer a th- a machine that helps do some of the thinking for us um, so the legacy really does start in the stone age and to organize this text I um, again organizing the information and doing all the illustrations was the funnest part for me because like I said before I'm a graphic designer so being able to organize like you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of years of human history into illustrations. I mean, that's a blast. And so each text, each chapter, um, well, first I start off with a little overview of just different themes that are in the book, like, you know, memory and storage, video games, robots and AI, and I do a little overview, but once I start getting into each chapter, which is divided by time period. So we start with ancient history, then we go to the industrial revolution, Advances that happened during World War II. and as you notice, the chapters cover massive amounts of history, and then it starts going to a couple decades, and uh, even smaller, even smaller, because the the kind like the uh, the graph of um, progress is so slit; it's curved up with time. Um, but within each of those chapters, I give a basic overview with tons of illustration. Then I give a brief illustrated timeline of just that chapter. So they're just you know a couple sentences with fun facts. Again, we're trying to build courage for these readers who maybe be new to the topic. So by cre- having an overview and then a timeline before we go into the denser stories, allows them to come with reference of what they should expect in the next coming pages. Um, and also it's fun because that means more drawings. I then have two pages of stories throughout history that have tons of fun facts, All around it just if you need to take a break you can learn you know about like silly things like the first um, the first like um, computer virus that was ever on a computer it was called the worm and it just like looked like a little worm (laughs) there's a there's a lot of like me drawing people getting spam and going ugh Um, throughout history people getting spam mail um and then I highlight three important inventions and then I highlight important influential people throughout history. And even though I um, have different little short, little bios about in different influential people throughout history, um, it's really important to note that there is no such thing as a lone genius. I, I highlight these people so you can kind of get an understanding of their, of their intent. And sometimes, um, you know, it's not, these people um, are some of the most powerful people in the world or were the most powerful people in the world. So it's really important to understand the intent behind what they were doing to understand the world we live in today. But um, thousands of people worked on this technology. It's a legacy that goes again, throughout history and it's conversation throughout time. So even though we highlight important people they do not stand alone.
0: Right. So that's uh, it's funny, like, you would think we rehearsed this, right? This like spontaneous <laughs> interview. because um, the next question I was thinking about asking, you led me right towards it. Cause you do you do highlight stories from history and you do a lot with influential people. Now I'm gonna ask a, a, a nasty question for an interviewer because I'm gonna ask you to choose favorites, right? Oh, <laughs> did you have a favorite story in this collection that you liked writing about or a favorite influence or a, I mean you cover everything? So was I there do. any any that stood out to you?
1: Oh, man.
2: Okay. There's two. Can I tell two stories? Okay. You're,
0: allowed to tell, you're allowed to tell three. But I'll, oh, I'll say. I'm allowed
2: to tell three. Okay. Uh, let's go in. Uh, I'm going to tell two and I'm going to go in order. So first, one of my favorite stories to learn about and to research was the ENIAC women. So it was a team of women who... Um, programmed the first electronic speed computer. And this was during World War II. It was completely secret. It was at UPenn in an underground secret basement. And what's interesting is that one, these women, they weren't allowed to see the machine. Oh yes, and that is one of my favorite drawings in the book which is a drawing of the ENIAC. And I drew some of those women actually turning the dials and and on the switches that you see right there. Um, And so those women, um, they weren't allowed to see the machine while they were programming it. So um, they had to figure out, and there was also no programming tools back then. Like programming wasn't a thing because computers were just so new. So they had to draw the logic diagrams without seeing the machine with pencil and paper by hand. And then when they finally were down in that basement, which is a huge dark room filled with 1,200 Uh, hot blinking lights that would constantly burst and like bring the machine to a halting stop Um, and they had to like physically program this machine by running back and forth in this room, turning the switches, plugging and unplugging um, the the wires Um, and they realized that um, with their brain power and um, their tenacity, they can make this machine do literally anything they wanted to, programming, mathematical-wise. And it was a huge success because of them. Uh, Up until that point, that machine had done more math than all of human history in, like, the year that it was running. Isn't that wild? Um, And But the the sad story is, is that when um, the newspapers came, when the war was over, newspapers came, they took pictures of the machine and they, instead of saying what these women did, they used them as models and just kind of showed them off as models, even though they all went on to basically uh, teach the next generation of computer programmers in the United States. Um, Again, but now we could celebrate them. And what was wild about drawing this image is that I don't think anyone has drawn an illustration of the ENIAC like this before. So I had to look at tons of old greeny videos, um, these like black and white fo- photographs, pictures of these women that I could find, um, interviews with them to like the, uh, the interviews that they, they had done for documentaries and to try and like piece together what that room would have looked like um, for the illustration, which was really, really exciting
0: <laughs> that, that, that page was alive for me but you just brought it you know three-dimensional <laughs> and then some so that's story one right that's and story
2: like, one that's yeah story
0: one. okay second story i got my book out on. let me, let me second
2: forget. story is one that our readers might be more uh familiar with but i really love uh, uh talking about steve wozniak i i just think he's a really cool guy um And a lot of people don't know this, but he left Apple um, in the 80s to become a teacher. So um, what I think is really cool about it is that he kind of went into creating a personal computer um, just because he wanted one in his own house. So I talked about these women programming this giant machine in top secret labs. For a very long time, computers were not accessible to everyday people. They were only accessible to uh, people in the military, large companies with deep pockets. And they were also like physically massive, normal people weren't even allowed to go into the rooms that the mainframe computers existed in. Actually, my mom used to be a computer programmer in the 80s. And she told me that like the computer she would, um, she programmed assembly um, on punch cards, which is what they still use in some nuclear uh, uh, nuclear um, uh, power plants because like it's unhackable because it's assembly. Anyway, so she programmed in assembly, um, and she told me that the, uh, the room that the uh, mainframes were kept in were, were were refrigerated, and she wasn't allowed in them at all. Um, and that I mean that's still like that's living history. My mom remembers it. Um, so around that time in the '70s, um, uh, you know, there was a bunch of teenagers in California. Um, And, you know, also like in Washington and kind of thinking about like, man, wouldn't it be cool if I had one of these things? Wouldn't it be cool if it could fit in my room and it wasn't like a million (laughs) dollars? So um, what's cool about Steve Wozniak is that he actually started all of this just for fun and because he loved doing pranks. And he would like, he actually created these blue boxes that allowed you to hack into um, phone lines where you could call anywhere in the world for absolutely free. And he used his blue boxes to try and prank the Pope um, it didn't happen. They stopped him at Vatican City. But um, he was just—he was just like pranking everyone. He would torment like all of his teachers in university by um, like hacking into their like hacking into their uh, computers and like just doing pranks on everyone. And um, he had this remote control that would change the channel on all of the TVs. So he would like ruin all their lectures by changing their television channel. He was a monster. He was a prank monster. But. Um, it was through his just joy and this playfulness that he started trying to put together a personal computer that would be affordable, that could be used right out of the box. And that is the Apple One, which then started the computer company, Apple with Steve Jobs and you know really revolutionized um, the fact that we have personal computers today because the large companies didn't want to make a tool for normal people, but um, they only sold Perfect. the and they, and they only, they sold the first Apple one at the hilarious price of six, 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 $666. $666. Oh. Cause, uh, and I that was like, fun. cause you know, they're just like a bunch of dudes laughing. And like, when you yeah. asked them about it, they were like, what's up with that? They were just like, we thought it was funny.
0: When well, I'm <laughs> laughing because as an edu- as an educator, being in a professional development site where we were learning the way these digital tools could change the classroom, and we could have kids like leave commentary on on questions that we had in different rooms or whatever, and we had I, the administrators were in one side of the building, and then the, the teachers were in the other. But we, I, my colleague and I, we were impish, and we found my principal's like page that he was working on, and we were throwing pictures of Madonna like just <laughs> just being silly onto his page so that he would have it when he got to it. What we didn't know is that his page was being shown as a model in the PD in that room. And so all these Madonna pictures kept popping up and Ron, Ron Freeman was like, I didn't do that, I didn't do that. So I actually think the impish playfulness, artistry of of these tools, they're amazing, it's amazing. And I also think one of the, one of the things that you did in the book and I was like, when I got to it, I was like, I am so glad this is here. And I, I kind of alluded to it at the beginning was just the idea that there are a lot of challenges, right? Yes. And, and, and that the challenges in the digital world are the digital divide, access. Um, so where did that come from or, and why did you include that? Because you know we are technical, but not everybody has, they have tools in their hands, but not these digital tools. So what are your thoughts on that?
2: As I was researching this book, I actually started looking at a lot of statistics about who has access to computers and also who only has access to a smartphone as the only computer that they have in their home. And those people are called smartphone, uh, smartphone dependent. And it became very clear that if you were uh, below a certain income or if you were young, you were more likely to not have a real computer in your home and it, upset me because these smart devices are not made to do deep work. And this is the example that I like to give. By design, they're not made to do deep work. They could, they have processing power. They could be designed better. And the example that I like to give is a lot of books are read on a smartphone, but not a lot of books are written on a smartphone. Um, And that's when you start thinking about that and how, what are the tools you need to create art, create the kind of work that raises you an economic level that generates wealth for yourself and for your family, Um, you need a a computer. You need a real desktop computer, not a smartphone. And that's by design. Um, And then while we were in lockdown, so many of my teacher friends were struggling getting their kids the tools they needed just to be able to participate in their lessons. So when we talk about the digital divide, we are talking about um, people not having access to the tools they need to participate in uh, white collar jobs and really money-making, real money-making jobs. And that's wealth being stolen from them in my opinion. There's also another thing to really talk about, which I I mentioned in the challenges, which is the ecological impact that these machines have. Um, You know, like computers can feel like magic, but they're not magic. They're made of gold. They're made of lithium. They're they're made of precious unrenewable resources. So when computers are not designed to be upgraded and reused, when they're designed to be thrown in the trash and to buy the next one, not only are we taking computers out of the hands of people who need them by not like updating the software and things on that, um, but we're also creating an ecological nightmare. And these are things that we need to talk about because um, our need for this tech is only going to increase. And I think by putting this in the public consciousness, we can ask the people who are in charge and also the future leaders in technology who are being taught today in classrooms to think differently and to um, dream of a better way that we can create our devices.
0: Wow. And that's exactly how I felt when I got to that part of the book. Because, you know, here you have the whole history and you're like, man, this is so dense and beautiful and wonderful. But then all of a sudden, there's this like place where you're like, But dot dot dot. But we also have to consider this. But I also think the one thing that you highlight so well is that we are tool oriented. We are tool oriented species, and we always figure out the next phase. And so you also end with a prediction for the future, and, and you speculate what's coming next. And so I want I want you to do a little prediction before I have one last question. And that is, what what do you think schools? 25 years, 50 years from now are gonna look like given the technology and the compu- the computers that are gonna be available to us. Like what do you what, predict for us?
2: Man, well, first let me just say this. I think the greatest part about learning history is to really hit the nail on the head that we build the world that we live in and we can build it any way we want. We don't just need to accept that the way our tools are built now are the way that they're going to be in the future. Because again, we're the ones who made them. And this is what I imagine in my most hopeful mindset for schools in the future, which is that makerspaces become much more a part of schools. Uh, Things like um, things to create and build tools in the real world. So it's not just this virtual reality world that we're going to be living in. It's how do we use computers to. figure out how to build new materials, how to have hands-on activities. Um, I remember interacting with my first makerspace at the ripe age of 23, when um, I was working for a major company that had one and being able to use a laser machine and a 3D printer and program a sewing machine as an artist, it felt like heaven. But then think about all the applications for whatever young kids are interested in, whether it's technology, cooking, Farming, um, there's so many cool things that can happen when we use computers as a tool to filter what that um, what what ever we're interested in, and I think a lot about it in my art career. What's next? Um, so I think one maker spaces. Two, I also think that um, I think that people are going to get a hang of more virtual um, spaces that we can um, kind of. Communicate and collaborate in, and what I'm hoping is that the dream that Douglas Engelbart had all the way back um, at, at SRI when he was coming on uh, coming about the uh, the online um, the the basically it's the the NLS it's the online system where like he figured out like what a mouse is and like what a desktop imagine what a desktop could be. The whole point was to create tools that make us all collectively smarter together and collaborate with each other in these new ways. So I think that we're going to see tools that allow us to collaborate and work on projects together in ways that we have never imagined before. And already the fact that I can beam into schools now and I can talk to 400 kids at once and we can have a huge 400 kid wide discussion where everyone feels heard and we're having a great time. Um, I think we're just going to keep moving that forward. I kind of rambled a little bit, but- No, you didn't. I thought
0: that was, I was like mesmerized by that answer. Like, okay, again, it sounded like we, we rehearsed this um, because I think you are absolutely spot on. I mean, when we- the National Writing Project has been using Zoom a lot longer than the whole nation because we all have to connect nationally. And when we jumped onto online spaces, the one thing that became so obvious to me is boundaries were changing. So like when I did like summer work with young people, it used to just be the Connecticut kids who could get dropped off at campus, but I was having kids coming from all over the world signing in. And it was just It was wild, but it was also like I could then leave that room and then I could be in Alabama or I could be in Mississippi or I could be in Florida. And I really love that part of technology as well. Brilliant book. Wonderful book. Everyone needs to get it. I cannot speak. Any more highly of uh, of any text right now? I think it's amazing, but I also know that you never stop, right? It, you're like our national writing project teachers. It's go, go, go. What's next? What what's next? And so I want to know what's next on the docket. I I have a prediction after all this technology that you probably want to go back to the nat- natural world a little bit. So what 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 can we look forward to in 2023?
2: Yes. So you all might be already familiar with my book, What's Inside a Flower, which I made with elementary school curriculum in mind, and I'm still thinking about my elementary school teachers. I got your back. I am doing, um, I'm expanding the series focusing on more life cycle curriculum. Um, So we're doing What's Inside a Caterpillar's Cocoon and What's Inside a Bird's Nest. And I'm working on both of those books right now and they're going to be out next year, starting in the fall and then the following spring. So please stay tuned. We're gonna have a ton of activities and resources to go with those books, to inspire your young ones, to explore the nature that's right in their backyard and to learn how we could protect our planet a little bit better.
0: That's awesome. I think every school in the nation needs a Rachel Ingotowski, like in an office, like next to the principal, so they can tell the principal when they're doing something wrong, and then they can come educate in every classroom space. You are amazing. <laughs> you are brilliant. You are a gift to the world, and I so appreciate you. I have to go to the the last prompt We're waiting for uh, Tanya to come back in. She might not come back in right away. um but my you exiting not see arm, me? No, I don't see you, but it's okay we love you. I'm not seeing you.
2: I see you, you know Tanya.
0: Oh, I, oh, oh, you know why I don't see you is because I moved it over. So, Hey <laughs> everybody, like, hey, you are. Look, everybody, it's my, friend. <laughs> it's my friend. So my exiting prompt, um, the last thing you can write your way out of this session is, is as you think about the wonderful session just now with Rachel Ignatowski and her way of visually relaying information to readers. I want you to think ahead to the 2022-2023 school year where you're going to buy some of her new books that are coming out. But I want you to, yeah, I know we're we're finished with the school year, Crandall, don't make us do work. But I want you to think about this. Think about one curricular change you want to make for next year or one new digital tool you want to try in your classroom. And in your writer's notebook, I don't want you writing. I want you to doodle like an illustrator of what you think that could look like in the upcoming school year. As you do that, you can then put a, take a picture of it with your phone and store it away until next late August, September. And then you can look at it and say, oh yeah, I did some brainstorming before the last year's school year ended. Ah, all right. So that was wonderful. That was a wonderful interview. And I, I felt so good to be the person who was able to do that. That was, thank you, Tanya, for the suggestion.
1: <laughs> uh- Rachel, you may or may not know, because we have had Joseph guest once before, that usually Brian and I leave the screen and then we text each other the whole time, like, this is amazing and this is awesome and this was my favorite line. And I had to sit all by myself for <laughs> in that interview <laughs> with so much excitement. Um, I can't say enough about how much I appreciate your work, how much I love to hear you talk about it. I don't ever want you to stop making beautiful books. And yet like Brian, I want to make you the secretary of education for <laughs> the world I want. There's so like I was following a thread from your thinking about the way you organize information so that um, everyone can find their own way through it. And that these small bites give us courage to take on larger content to um, all the way to the end of your thinking about how um, both having the computing power not just to consume information but to make it is so terribly important for young people and um, the idea that having these kinds of experiences and the spaces and the powerful tools to um, think about the future would will shape the future that we get to have and how important it is that everybody has access to that. Um, It just felt like, you know, you've put the person that you are into this book about a really important history. And it was amazing to have the opportunity to have you tell us about that. So it was a long and rambling thank you, but thank you, Rachel.
2: Oh, Thank you guys so much for having me. Um, Every single book I do is a love note to teachers and, um, I just love it when I get to
1: talk to you guys. You guys are the best. <laughs> Yay, National Writing Project. Yeah. Oh, and we love you, Rachel Ignatowski. Thank you. Book everyone.
0: <laughs> It's a human of the National Writing Project, an author human.
1: <laughs> I am the human. Uh, that's really funny. Brian and I were at a meeting last week where we talked about the humans of the writing project. And so you, we count you among us. Thank you.
2: Ah, uh, thank you. Thank you. Despite um, Omnibot and Kikuzo being on my team. Oh,
1: I love it. <laughs> well, bring them too. Bring them too. <laughs> Um, I also always like to end by thanking our audience. So we're so glad if you're listening to this show or watching the show, we're so glad you're here and we want to see you again. So please follow us on Twitter or Instagram, join our Facebook community, visit nwp.org, sign up for our right now newsletter, or come to our online makerspace, the right now teacher studio. You can find that at studio.nwp.org. Uh, Join us there and, um, and help us make a different, different future schools and classrooms with all the power to write and make that young people deserve. Thank you, Brian, for being an excellent interviewer, not just a host. Thank you, Rachel, for joining us. Um, It was a lovely way to spend an afternoon and I appreciate you both.